Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. War. Economic Revolutions. Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. War. Economic Revolutions. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research. War. W-A-R. Economic Revolutions. Presented by Hakeem Alipokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club Communications, with two Ks, that is, in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us only today in this edition from the Little Book of Economics. This is the beginning of the second part of the book, which goes into Industrial and Economic Revolutions, 1820 to 1829. Industrial and Economic Revolutions, 1820 to 1829. All right. This uh, is a good span of reading for this one. Should take anywhere between 30 minutes to one hour to get through the material. So let's check it out. We got by the early 19th century, the effects of the Industrial Revolution were spreading from Britain to Europe and across North America, transforming agricultural nations into industrial economies. All right, so that's what the Industrial Revolution was, right? Taking people from from the farm into the city, transforming agricultural agricultural nations into industrial economies. Wow. So you went from an agriculture nation to an industrial economy. The change had been rapid and dramatic, bringing about a fundamental shift in the structure of economies. The focus had shifted from the merchants who traded in goods to the producers, the owners of capital. So the focus had shifted from the merchants who traded in goods to the producers, the owners of capital. Okay. All right, so uh, as well as a new way of thinking about the economy, capitalism also brought with it new social and political issues, distorting the market. All right, so I just want to look at that again. So what did it shift the focus from merchants who traded in goods to the producers, the owners of capital? Okay. Distorting the market, the most notable of the social changes was the emergence of a new ruling class of industrialist producers and a steady growth in the number of firms producing goods, many of which were offering shares of their business, their businesses for sale Hmm. in the stock markets. These provided the competitive market 
That was the focus of the classical view of economics, in which the operations of the market are central. However, as market economies developed and grew, new problems began to emerge. For example, oh, here we go again. For example, as Adam Smith had warned in 1776, there was a danger that large producers would dominate the market and operate either as monopolies or cartels, fixing prices at high levels, at a high level and keeping production low. You know, I want to take a look at something I, I actually looked at in the end of one of his, uh, in the parts of Wealth of Nations that I found pretty interesting. Because he was railing, he was going in on some folks here. Uh, he talked about at the end of one of these the chapters Adam Smith um, about let's take a look can I even find it quickly because he um, he was pretty pretty clear about oppression of people, but uh, if I can't find it, that's okay. I just know that um, it was uh, pretty intense how he was putting it out there. He, he talked about oppression. Yeah, well, you know, that's what I get for not marking it in the book. I was able to make my point more clearly here. I can still make it on whatever. Adam Smith. <clears throat> Good. Okay, so for example, Adam Smith had warned in 1776 there would be a danger that large producers would dominate the market and operate either as monopolies or cartels, fixing prices at a high level and keeping production low. Although regulation could prevent such practices in instances where only a few producers operated, they could easily develop strategies to distort the, comp the competitiveness of the market. Smith had assumed that men behaved rationally in the economy. But this also came into question as investors rushed to buy shares in companies whose worth had been exaggerated. This caused bubbles contradicting the idea of a stable economy based on reasoned behavior. Despite this, some economists, such as Leon Walrus, I'm going to say Walrus, 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 I'm just going to say Walrus, even though there's not a U there. Leon Walrus and Vilfredo Pareto argued that the market economy would always tend toward equilibrium, which would in turn determine the levels of production and prices. Their contemporary, Alfred Marshall, explained supply and demand and how these prices interact in a system of perfect competition. The question of price was one that concerned many economists at the time because it affected both producers and consumers in the new capitalist society. Taking their lead from the moral philosophers of the previous generation, they began to see the value of goods in terms of their utility the satisfaction they would good, give, rather than the labor that added value to raw materials. The idea of marginal utility, the gain brought about by the consumption of a particular product, was explained, explained in mathematical terms by William Jevons. I'd actually like to see that. 
the, the idea of marginal utility, which is the gain brought about by the consumption of a particular product, explained in mathematical terms. Please show me where that is, Mr. William Jevons. I want to know. That would be a good uh, way to. Uh, I, I want. I want. I like equations. And a lot to a lot of people, they look like alien stuff. So that would be that would be quite fun. So marginal, marginal. It's uh, what was? By the way, I'm distracted because I'm still trying to find something from uh, from Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations. I, I got a little obsessive because there was something I know that I saw and that I I really enjoyed that he wrote. But, oh, <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so it's at the end of book one. This is what they were talking about here where Smith had warned in 1776 there was a danger that large producers would dominate the market and create either uh, operate either as monopolies or cartels. So this is not the exact same thing, but this is actually what I was looking for. He says, um, he says, the proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce, which comes from this order. So he's talking about the order of, um, of those who, who, who earn revenue from profit, right? The, the capital owners, right? So he's like, to widen the market and to narrow the competition is always the interest of the dealers. Right, so let's start with that, right? Um, the interest of the dealers, however, in any particular branch of trade or manufacture is always in some respect different from and even opposite to that of the public. To widen the market and to narrow the competition is always the interest of the dealers. To widen the market may frequently be agreeable enough to the interest of the public, but to narrow the competition must always be against it and can serve only to enable the dealers by raising their profits above what they naturally would be, to levy for their own benefit an absurd tax upon the rest of their fellow citizens. Citizens. The proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce which comes from this order ought always to be listened to with great precaution and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined, and not only with the most scrupulous, but with the most suspicious attention. It comes from an order of men whose interest is never exactly the same as that with, the, with that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have, upon many occasions, both deceived and oppressed it. So yeah, no, that was long, but yeah, that's the end of uh, book one in Wealth of Nations. That, that's what this line here that Adam Smith said, there was a danger that large producers would dominate the market and operate either as monopolies or cartels, fixing prices at high levels and keeping production low, right? So deceiving and oppressing, both, uh, even though that might not be the exact thing this book is referring to. But let's look at Marx. Oh boy, Karl Marx. Um, remember Karl Marx? And um, this is, uh, I don't always forget his, his uh, co-author's name. It's right on the front of my book. It's Friedrich, Friedrich Engels. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, they wrote the Communist Manifesto. Um, all right. So, 
Friedrich Engels. So let's see, Marx's theory of value. This is Marx's theory of value. What is that? All right, we have uh, the theory that value, that the value of a product is determined by the labor involved in producing it still had some adherence, particularly as it concerned not the producers or consumers so much as the workforce producing the goods for capitalist employers. Looking at value in this light, Karl Marx argued that the inequalities of a market economy amounted to an exploitation of the working class by the owners of capital. Hey, well, I mean, I am, they, they always uh, come to discussion sometimes, uh, Alexi. Um, I read and discuss, even if I'm just discussing it with myself, because I stop every once in a while to, um, to address some of the things and read other books. Yeah, but because I, yeah, it is what it, whatever it becomes. All right. So looking at the value in this life, Mark, Karl Marx argued that the inequalities of a market economy amounted to an exploitation of the working class by the owners of capital in the Communist Manifesto. And his analysis of capitalism, capital, Marx argued for a proletariat, proletarian revolution to replace capitalism with what he saw as the next stage in economic development, a socialist state in which the means of production are owned by the workers and an eventual abolition of private property. Yeah, he was really into getting rid of private property, Karl Marx. Let's see. What is the, uh, the, the first thing he opens up with in the capitalist, uh, the communist manifesto is um, talking about the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles, bourgeois and proletarians, bourgeois, proletarians. He talks about the contending classes. He's like the modern bourgeois society that sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. It has but established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. Yeah, Marx. He's uh, a little upset there. Let's, let's take a look. All right. So he wanted to replace, uh, you know, he saw... saw Capitalism as the old, and the next stage of economic development is a socialist state in which the means of production are owned by the workers. And, oh boy, an eventual abolition of private property. I haven't yawned like that in a long time. Although Marx's ideas were subsequently adopted in many parts of the world, market economies continue to operate elsewhere. Generally, economists continue to defend capitalism <clears throat> as the best means of ensuring prosperity, although tempered to some extent with measures to compensate for its injustices. Following a mathematical approach to economics that focused on supply and demand and a reaction against the ideas of socialism, an Austrian school of economic thought emerged stressing the creative power of the capitalist system. 
The free market economy was soon to receive some hard knocks after the Wall Street crash of 1929. However, the theories of neoclassical economists and the Austrian school in particular later resurfaced as the model for economies in the Western world in the late 20th century and even came to replace most of the world's communist planned economies. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't care about the, the about uh, here on Colin. I'm just reading, Colin's just a backup. Fairly loud background, female speaking, FY for recording quality. Yeah, I don't give a shit. Um, I have a headset on for wisdom and I, put, I upload it to Spreaker over on Colin. It's, um, it's discussed, whatever. I mean, what the hell? All right. Okay, so. Now we got, uh, that was, so this is a section, Industrial and Economic Revolutions. And um, the next section, or the first section in this part of the book, is called Phone Calls Cost More Without Competition. And it talks about monopolies. So phone calls cost more without competition, of course, right? If you're the only people who've got phone service, you can charge as much as you want, if, especially if people want it, if you can manufacture consent, and um, and then you can make uh, people pay whatever the hell you want them to pay. All right. So phone calls cost more when there is, uh, without competition, monopolies. The game of monopoly is fun. I haven't played in a long time. I need to get into it. More likely, though, I'll get uh, a good old copy of um, Cash Flow. That'll be, a, that'll be the game to get, is Cash Flow. All right. Phone calls cost more without competition. And that would be monopolies. In context, the focus is markets and firms. Key thinker, John Stuart Mill, uh, who lived 1806 to 1873. Before him, in 330 BCE, that's a long time ago, Aristotle's politics describes the impact of a monopoly. In 1776, Adam Smith warns of the dangers of monopolies in the wealth of nations. In 1838, French economist Antoine Cournot uh, analyzes the impact on price of a reduction in the number of firms. After, in 1890, Alfred Marshall develops a model of monopoly, and in 1982, U.S. economist William Bomal publishes Contestable Markets and the Theory of Industry Structure, Redefining the Nature of Competition. Mm -hmm. A monopoly is a situation where one firm has control of a particular market, such as the smartphone market. The firm may be the only supplier of a product or service, or it may have a dominating market share. In many countries, a firm is said to have a monopoly if it controls more than 25% of the market. Wow. So you only need to control a quarter of the market to be considered to have a monopoly? All right. The suggestion that monopolies can cause the price of goods to be higher than they would be if many companies were supplying them has existed for millennia. It dates back at least as far as Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC, who warned about the problem in a story about the Greek philosopher 
tallies of Miletus, the public taunted tallies for practicing philosophy, which they said was a useless profession that made no money. To prove them wrong, tallies bought up all the local olive presses in the winter when they were cheap, and then, using his monopoly power, sold them at very high prices in the summer when the presses were needed. In doing so, he made himself rich. For Thales, the moral was that the philosophers could be rich if they wanted. For That's pretty clever, though. For economists, the story warns of the potential power of monopoly. Hmm. I like that. I never heard that story. That's cool. You, you go, Thales. You bought a bunch of... Uh, <laughs> in the winter. That's a good story, though. That's talking about... Right now, you know, people are talking about like housing busts and markets and crashes, and now everybody starts selling when the prices start going down because they don't know that things, you know, it lasts longer they sell, and then they go into a higher market where they think things are going up. It's, it's the dumbest thing to do. But he bought up all the local olive presses in the winter when they were cheap, and then using his monopoly power, sold them at very high prices in the summer. Because he got all of them, proving that. Uh, he made himself rich. <laughs> he said that philosophers could be rich if they wanted. <laughs> For econ economists, the story warns of the potential power of monopoly. All right, market power. In 1848, the English political scientist John Stuart Mill published his Principles of Political Economy. It drew together much of the thinking about whether a lack of competition caused prices to rise. The general view was that some industries were likely to tend toward a lack of competition. This trend was created either through artificial means, such as the introduction of a tax by governments or on imported goods, or through natural means, as a consequence of firms growing ever larger. Large firms had begun to dominate the market because late 19th century industry required ever-increasing amounts of capital. The firms that could grow by capturing enough of the market to finance the necessary investment had the ability to use the market power to drive those smaller competitors out of business and to charge higher prices. Huh. Charge higher prices. Well, let's see. How does that go? Competition between producers increases output, and then where would that go to? Then it drives prices down. But then uh, what can monopolies do? Monopolies, like some telephone companies, have no competition, so they can do what? They can produce less and charge higher prices, then, uh, yeah. Well, that's that tells us why phone calls cost more without competition. Mm-hmm. Because if there's competition between producers, they increase output, right? They're putting out more, more quantity, so the prices go down. But monopolies can produce less, produce less and charge more. All right, good times. <clears throat> you already know that. Um, hmm. During the Industrial Revolution. Coal, railways, and water supply all showed a tendency toward concentrated ownership. In mining, the ownership of the land was concentrated in just a few hands. In the case of railways and water supply, there was no alternative to a limited number of firms offering services because the scale of the infrastructure required was so great that if there were anyone, 
and that if there were any more than a few firms, no one would be able to cover their costs. Like Adam Smith before him, Mill believed that these features of markets did not inevitably lead to monopoly. The most likely outcome was collusion between firms, allowing them to fix high prices. Such arrangements would lead to high cost for consumers in the same way as monopolies. So yeah, that's what collusion and cartels are, is that they are they act and as different bodies together acting as one to act like a monopoly so that they can raise the price again. Right? Monopoly workers. Mill realized that it is not only within the goods market that a lack of competition is able to push prices up. Monopoly effects can emerge in the labor market too. He pointed to the case of goldsmiths who earned much higher wages than workers of similar skill because they were perceived to be trustworthy, a characteristic that is rare and not easily provable. This created a significant barrier to entry so that those working with gold could demand a monopoly price for their services. Mill realized that the goldsmith's situation was not an isolated case. He noted that large sections of the working classes were barred from entering skilled professions because they entailed many years of education and training. The cost of supporting someone through this process was out of reach for most families, so those who could afford it were able to enjoy wages far above what might be expected. Similarly, some historians have viewed the guilds of the medieval era as an example of privileged craftsmen attempting to shut out competition from other workers. Right, well, and that makes sense. That's why people are trying to get into school and get scholarship. I mean... Can I just say that's the way it is, and it sucks? But should people, I mean, this is should people be able to just go get a free education? Would they value the education as much if everybody just got it for free, if they didn't have to work for it or jump through some hoops and things like that to get it? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's possible. Um, well, see, let's take a look. So the cost of supporting someone through this process was out of reach for most families, so those who could afford it were able to enjoy wages far above what might be expected. Similarly, some historians have viewed the guilds of the medieval era as an example of privileged craftsmen attempting to shut out competition from other workers. From the late 1890s, British economist Alfred Marshall rigorously analyzed the effects of monopolies on prices and on consumer welfare. Marshall was interested in determining whether the higher price and lower output result from monopolies cause a loss in total welfare for society. In his Principles of Economics, Marshall formulated the concept of consumer surplus. This is the difference between the maximum amount that a consumer would be willing to pay for a good and the amount he actually pays. All right, so he formulated the concept of consumer surplus which is the difference between the maximum amount that a consumer would be willing to pay for a good and the amount he actually pays. Suppose the consumer buys an apple for 20 cents uh, when he could have been, or when he would have been willing to pay 50 cents. His consumer surplus from the purchase of the apple is 30 cents. In a market with many firms, they compete on price and together supply an amount of apples that generates a certain amount of overall consumer surplus. For an apple sold to the last consumer, his willingness to pay with equal the price and no more apples can be sold. Yeah, his willingness to pay will equal the price and no more apples can be sold. 
The welfare loss of monopoly comes from the fact that fewer apples are sold compared to the amount that would have been sold in perfectly competitive markets. Essentially, this means that there are apples that could be supplied to the market that would generate consumer surplus, but they never appear on the market. That's a little little tricky. That's a little tricky. All right. Oh, advantages of monopolies are there. Monopolies also create more complex price and welfare effects. Marshall suggested that a monopolist might actually cut its prices to attract customers to its phone network. For example, since people will likely keep using the service once it is connected, even though rival technologies such as smartphones offer alternatives that are at least as good. Some economists have pointed out that monopolies can have benign effects in many markets. A monopoly would have lower costs than the total cost of a set of smaller firms because a monopolist would spend less on advertising and make full use of economies of scale. For these reasons, a monopolist may enjoy higher profits even when its price is lower than would be in the case of if many firms with higher costs were competing. In this case, the lower prices might help consumers and help drive economic growth. Will it now? Drive an economic growth? Right. So sometimes the monopolies can bring prices down. But see, all this is still in the self-interest of the, the monopolies. But in a similar fashion, large firms can attempt to gain monopoly profits, driving out rivals by aggressively cutting prices in the short run. Economists call this predatory pricing. In the long run, it can hurt consumers as the market becomes monopolized. However, in the late 1950s and 1960s, U.S. economist William Bumal claimed that it does not matter if there is a monopoly as long as there are no barriers to entering and exiting the market. The mere threat of competition means that the monopoly will set the price at a competitive level. That's true, right? So it says, if the, as long as there are no barriers to entering and exiting the existing market, hmm, the, the mere threat means they would keep it at fair prices. But this is because a higher price might attract new entrants in the market who would... Wait a minute. The mere threat of competition means that the monopoly will set the price at a competitive level. This is because a higher price might attract new entrants into the market who would take the market share from it, the monopoly. For this reason, prices may be uh, no higher under a monopoly than in a market with many competing firms. So there's also ways not to do that. Um, and it's, again, supply and demand are at the, the, the foundation of all this, but if the real supply, right, the produce of the land and the labor of humankind, making things that we need, right? Hmm, there are natural monopolies. What is that? One argument that began to take shape during Marshall's lifetime is that some monopolies are natural because of the enormous cost advantages of having a single firm. 
Many public utilities are natural monopolies, including telephone networks, gas, and water. The fixed cost of setting up a network of gas distribution pipes is huge compared to the cost of pumping an extra amount of gas. This idea led to an acceptance of national monopolies in the public utilities in many countries. Even so, governments began to intervene in these markets to counteract the possible monopoly effects. The problem is that in the case of a natural monopoly, the fixed costs are so high that compelling the firm to charge a competitive price might make the firm unprofitable. Solutions to this problem include the wholesale nationalization of industry or of the establishment of regulatory organizations that place limits on price increases, helping consumers but also hurting the economic viability of the industry. Mainstream economists argue that monopolized markets fall short of the perfectly competitive ideal. This view has led to government antitrust policies which seek to move markets toward competitiveness. This has meant the introduction of measures aimed at preventing monopolies from abusing their market power. You know, necessary, including the breakup of monopolies and the banning of mergers of firms that would create monopolies. The modern Austrian school, including U.S. economist Thomas DiLorenzo, born in 1954, are critical of this approach. Both, both argue that the real market competition is not the passive behavior of perfectly competitive firms operating in a state of equilibrium. It is about cutthroat. It is about cutthroat rivalry between wow. It is about cutthroat rivalry between an often small number of large business businesses. Competition takes place through price and non-price competition, though advertising and marketing and through or through advertising and marketing and through large firms innovating and creating new products. Slightly apart from this school of economists, Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter also stressed the dynamic potential of monopoly as firms. Right? So, slightly apart from the school of economists, from this school of economists, Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter also stressed the dynamic potential of monopoly as firms. Compete. So, he, he, um, Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter also stressed the dynamic potential of monopoly as firms compete. Yeah, as firms compete to create new products and dominate entire markets because of the potential profits. What economists agree on is that a true is that true competition is good for consumers. It is less certain whether or not that monopoly is incompatible with this. Huh. What economists agree on is that what that that true competition is true competition is good for consumers. It is less certain whether a whether or not a monopoly is incompatible with this. In the early two, 20th century, Germain examined peculiarly a combination of competition. Hmm. 
and Monopoly brings about the greatest palace in satisfaction of wants. There's a little caption that shows uh, operators at work, the switchboards at AT&T Company now, New York and the 1940s. In, in the, the 1940s, because of the company's size and dominance, it was considered to be a natural monopoly. Oh, thank goodness, that's it. What's well, been 36 minutes for the reading over here uh, on Spreaker, Social Podcasting Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Colin, Social Podcasting. This was a section entitled Industrial and Economic Revolutions. The dates listed are 1820 to 1829. And the next reading is going to be Let the Ruling Class Tremble at a Communist Revolution. And that's Marxist economics. So I'm getting a double dose of all of this economics here by reading Marx and Engels as well as reading uh, Adam Smith and everything in between. So you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, presented by Hakeem Alifokas Alexander. Uh, yeah, presented by me, yeah, Hakeem Alifokas Alexander. On Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Colin, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club. Oh, in association with exerciseinyourmind.com and your equilibrium. This was from the Little Book of Economics, um, Industrial and Economic Revolution.